0: So, what's going on with all the news about the sun? Some say that the sun is getting angry. Well, what does that mean exactly, and should we be concerned? Frankly, yes, we should be concerned. It's generally not a good thing to get too much sunshine. The ultraviolet component of sunlight is harmful to the skin. That's why humans have adapted a spectrum of skin pigmentation. The more sunlight there is to protect ourselves against, the more pigmentation we need. Big floppy hats, and of course, bottles of high SPF, oil-free sunscreen help too. Especially for fair-skinned people. But what is planet Earth going to do? First, let's get a good estimate of just how angry the Sun is likely to get. The Sun usually goes through an active-calm-active cycle every 22 years, with highs and lows occurring every 11 years. Why that happens, no one knows, it just does. There's probably a reason, but scientists haven't figured it out yet. They do know that, with each cycle, the Sun reverses its magnetic poles. That in itself is pretty astounding, especially when you consider that Earth hasn't reversed its magnetic poles in the last 600,000 years. Lately, the Sun has been extremely calm, the calmest it's been in over a hundred years in fact. That's unusual too. The active-calm-active cycle has turned into an active-calm-calm cycle. But that's changing. And it's why we are notifying Brightsiders about what to expect in the coming few years. The terms calm or active or angry refer to the amount of high-energy radiation that the Sun gives off. Thankfully, the amount of visible light the Sun gives off doesn't change very much. That would be a serious problem. If the Sun were to get just 6% dimmer or brighter, the Earth would either freeze or fry. Observing sunspots is the easiest way to measure how active the Sun is. The more sunspots that are visible, the more active the Sun is. A graph known as the butterfly diagram tracks the 11-year period of sunspot activity. The butterfly diagram shows how sunspots disappear regularly from the surface of the Sun and reappear regularly in other locations. NASA predicted that the present cycle of solar activity would be calm like the previous one. But it's starting to look like that is not the case. Presently, we are in solar cycle number 25. That's the 25th 11-year solar cycle since 1755, when record-keeping began. This cycle of solar activity is expected to peak in 2025. The sun has already exceeded the number of sunspots NASA had predicted. So, it doesn't look like this solar cycle is going to be a calm one. It looks like we are going to have some very active sun-blasting radiation on Earth for the next several years. In early February 2022, 40 out of 49 SpaceX communication satellites in orbit above the atmosphere were destroyed by an explosion on the sun. High-speed electromagnetic plasma gas from the sun, known as solar wind, caused the Earth's atmosphere to compress and Elon Musk's satellites lost their orbital integrity and crashed back into Earth. Sunspots look like dark spots on the sun, but they aren't dark. They're just not as bright as the surface of the sun. To get a better idea, take a lit 25-watt light bulb and hold it in front of a lit 100-watt light bulb. The 25-watt light bulb will appear dark. That's the same way it is with sunspots. Sunspots on the surface of the sun almost always come in pairs. This is because sunspots are magnetic storms in the plasma gas of the sun. One sunspot will be magnetic positive, and the other sunspot will be magnetic negative. Between the two sunspots, which can be many times bigger than the Earth itself, there flows an electric current that carries a fiery arc of ionized gas with it. Solar flares are something else we should be concerned about. They are powerful electromagnetic explosions on the Sun associated with sunspots. As the super-hot plasma gas on the Sun churns and twists, it also twists the magnetic field lines in the sunspots. When these lines snap, a powerful explosion releases X-ray and gamma radiation at the speed of light. Visible gases are also released. Solar flares have a classification system according to how powerful they are. X-class solar flares are the most dangerous. This type of solar flare can cause radio blackouts across Earth and harm satellites, astronauts and orbit and even passengers on high-altitude airplanes. M-class solar flares cause spectacular aurora at the north and south pole areas on Earth, while C-class solar flares have almost no effect on Earth. But solar flares are not the biggest explosions on the sun. CME stands for coronal mass ejection, and these are much more massive than solar flares and more dangerous when they're headed our way. As the name indicates, coronal mass ejections are explosions that originate on the sun's corona. They hurl millions of tons of hot ionized gases outward from the corona. The word corona is derived from the Latin word for crown, and it's the layer of thin bright gas around the sun's surface. The corona of the sun is much hotter than the surface of the sun. The surface itself is about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. But the corona is somewhere between 1 to 2 million degrees. The why and how the corona is so much hotter than the surface of the sun is another major mystery that scientists have yet to completely work out. A recent theory claims the corona is heated by sound waves and the sun's nuclear reactions make a lot of noise. Project GONG, which stands for Global Oscillation Networking Group, was set up on Earth to monitor the sound waves on the sun. Cool, huh? Turns out, the sun is ringing, or oscillating, like a bell. And we have five observation sites across the globe. One in India, Australia, one in the Canary Islands, one in Chile, and one in California. They keep a constant watch over the 10 million sound waves moving on and around the sun. Now that the sun is entering an active phase, we can expect to see more powerful CMEs heading our way. The gases expelled by the sun are ionized and stripped of electrons by the intense heat. This causes them to form a proton storm that can travel through space at speeds of around 500 miles per second. These positively charged atomic nuclei will mostly be blocked or deflected by the magnetic field that extends around Earth. Our atmosphere is no help against a proton storm, although the last mile of air above the surface of the Earth stops the harmful X-rays from solar flares. The particle wind from the sun can only be stopped by Earth's magnetosphere. We can look forward to some spectacular aurora around Earth's magnetic poles, and it's very possible that these aurora will extend down to the mid-latitudes when the Earth is moving through a coronal mass ejection. Currently, the United States has a space probe headed for the solar corona. Because the corona of the sun extends outward for many millions of miles, the Parker Solar Probe, as it's called, is cruising 3.8 million miles from the surface of our star, or about one-tenth the distance to Mercury. The probe is experiencing temperatures of 2,400 degrees Fahrenheit, but it is also kept at perfect room temperature. A four and a half inch thick carbon composite heat shield protects the telescopes and magnetometers in the probe that measure the intensity of the solar wind. The five antennae that protrude into the coronal gases are made of a niobium alloy, which can withstand the extreme temperatures of the corona. The recent double calm cycle of the Sun is a bit concerning when trying to predict how active the Sun will get this cycle. The sunspots completely disappeared for a long time from the entire surface of the sun. It is as if the magnetic distortions we usually see on the photosphere of the sun had collapsed into its interior. Intense magnetism is coming to the surface now and breaking through into the corona. The National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado, is predicting that this solar cycle, cycle number 25, will be one of the strongest ever. The last solar cycle was very calm, with a sunspot count of only 116. The average is 170. But the prediction for this cycle is between 210 and 260 sunspots, which would be one of the strongest cycles ever. We stand to lose more satellites to a stronger solar wind. We can also expect electric grid overloads, as the proton storm peaks in 2025. That means we should expect an interruption to our internet services as positively charged protons get into the wires, run into the transformers, and overload them. On March 12, 1989, a powerful CME hit Earth and created absolute havoc with our power grids. Will we experience anything of this magnitude in the near future?
1: Well, stay sharp, bright-siders! The profession of an astronaut is probably one of the most intriguing and mysterious out there. But have you ever wondered about the details of their everyday life? Like what's going on under those bulky spacesuits? I mean, some people seriously believe that astronauts wear paper underwear. Others are sure that a lack of gravity allows the grime to just float away. If only. The thing is, astronauts don't do laundry at all. In 2011, NASA commissioned a washing machine for the International Space Station. Was it a joke? In any case, astronauts couldn't use it for apparent reasons. Delivering water to the ISS just to do laundry sounds outrageous and super costly. So, astronauts can only dream of freshly laundered linens and other stuff. Instead, fresh clothes get delivered to the station from Earth just like any other supplies. Unfortunately, it happens not that often since the price of launching literally anything into space is exorbitant. So, astronauts have to wear their clothes for way longer than they would otherwise do on Earth. The only thing that makes this situation a bit better is that astronauts tend to lose some of their sense of smell in space. When interviewed, some astronauts admitted wearing, for example, the same pair of shorts for months and only changing their underwear once every three or four days. It's probably not surprising that astronauts dress not to impress, but for comfort and convenience. Their typical attire usually consists of short-sleeved shirts and long cargo pants. Those are regular clothes we wear on Earth, nothing special. But when they leave the climate-controlled insides of the ISS, of course, they need special clothes. By that, I mean those very chunky spacesuits. They protect astronauts from insane temperature swings ranging from 250 degrees Fahrenheit in the sun to minus 250 degrees in the shade. But even with all this protection and cooling tubes wicking away body heat, spacewalks tend to cause astronauts to work up a sweat. Wearing an EVA, which stands for extravehicular activities, can mean hours of hard work. And don't forget that astronauts often wear layers to stay warm and pressurized. And these layers include an inner form-fitting item of clothing that resembles long underwear. This item is often reworn and even shared. And since there are no washing machines on the ISS, you get the point, right? An interesting fact there is a specially trained person who smells every single thing that astronauts take with them into space. It's done to protect them from unpleasant or toxic odors. The thing is that you can't really air the room out there in space if you don't like how it smells inside. That's why NASA is very careful about what kind of odors can pass through. At the same time, nothing can prevent the smells that appear already on the ISS. Anyway, spacesuits and what's underneath them are used again and again and soon you start worrying not only about bad smells but also about hygiene and health problems an alarming possibility of biocontamination arises it includes bacteria, body fluids, and other foreign substances it gets worse if we think about longer missions for instance, to the moon at the same time, it's totally impractical to wash spacesuit interiors on a consistent basis Water is too valuable on the ISS to waste it on something so mundane. That's why NASA, along with the European Space Agency and other organizations, asked specialists to develop fabrics that could solve the problem of biocontamination in suits. You see, during the shuttle program conducted by NASA, spacesuits were supposed to be used on quite short two-week trips. But then, astronauts started living on the ISS for much longer periods of time. That's why the spacesuit's lifespan had to be extended up to six years. No wonder microbes became a much more worrying issue than before. So more than a decade ago, a team of experts began to research different methods of getting rid of microbes and bacteria dwelling in spacesuits. They cut textiles in two-inch squares and put them in petri dishes and grew a few species of fungi and bacteria on these samples. Some of the fabrics they used were infused with copper. This substance has impressive antimicrobial properties. When bacteria touch this element, their cell walls and membranes get destabilized. The metal's ions damage microbes, making them more vulnerable. NASA scientists also tried using textiles treated with silicone and silver. The latter turned out to be as toxic to germs on contact as copper. After observing the stuff that had grown on the fabrics for the past 14 days, the researchers discovered that only one compound had managed to keep bacteria and fungi at bay. It was a solution of silver molecules normally used for disinfecting hospital dressings and other stuff. But the ions of this metal turned out to be too good at their job because they got rid of everything, literally. And total sterility could do more harm than good we need a balanced ecosystem consisting of millions of microorganisms to keep our organs and skin healthy. In 2022, NASA hired U.S. companies Axiom Space and Collins Aerospace to develop the next generation of spacesuits. And soon, a prototype suit appeared. It was designed to be used during the Artemis 3 mission. The main goal of this voyage is to land a crew at the south pole of our natural satellite. These spacesuits are supposed to use textiles with antimicrobial properties that can potentially reduce biocontamination. The cooling system of these suits will also add biocides in its water loops, which will help prevent microbial buildup. Now let's talk about spacesuits in more detail. To begin with, there are actually two main types of spacesuits. You've probably seen the Advanced Crew Escape Suit, a.k.a. the Orange Suit, a.k.a. the Pumpkin Suit astronauts wear this full-pressure suit during takeoff, or rather, liftoff, since we're talking about a spaceship. These suits are irreplaceable for those who are heading for super-high altitudes. There, the pressure is so low that people can't survive without a special protective suit. And while air crews wear partial-pressure suits, space crews have to be protected by full-pressure suits. After all, they travel way, way higher. The suit is also equipped with lots of things that can help an astronaut survive emergencies during a spaceship launch or landing. A regular pumpkin suit is stocked with flares, medications, survival gear, a radio, and a parachute. So, in short, astronauts couldn't live through the process of leaving Earth without the orange suit. But why did its designers choose this hue? The main reason for picking the orange color is that this hue is one of the most visible for search and rescue, including very probable sea rescue. As for EVAs, their purpose is different. Astronauts wear these suits when they set off on spacewalks. It can protect them from the severe conditions of outer space, with its extreme temperatures and near vacuum. Plus, the spacesuit can prevent small debris from hurting space travelers. You've probably noticed that eva suits are much bulkier than the orange ones that's because they have many layers of insulation and heavy protective fabric they also contain breathable air drinkable water and temperature controls now every time an astronaut goes on a spacewalk they use a tether that ties them to the space station and in case the tether breaks the eva suit has a backup system This system includes small jet thrusters which can be controlled from the station with the help of a joystick. As for the color, first of all, white reflects the heat of the sun better than other colors, and astronauts don't get too hot. Plus, the white color is the best when it comes to spotting the tiny dot of an astronaut against the vast expanse of black space. Another curious detail. While white spacesuits protect astronauts from getting too hot, they can't prevent them from getting too cold. And that's when special gloves come into play. They have special heaters which keep astronauts' fingers cozy and functioning. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your
0: curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side.
2: It's been decades since the last manned moon landing, Apollo 17, which happened in December 1972. Isn't it time we thought about going back to our dusty satellite and maybe even staying there? NASA has made a promise on this subject. They're preparing to send astronauts on the moon again, perhaps by 2025. This will all happen through a program called Artemis. It's also going to include the first woman ever to experience the lunar surface. Now you might ask, why haven't we done this already? One former NASA Administrator said something interesting on the subject. It's not because of scientific or technological issues. Problem was that the potential projects took too long and were just too costly. You see, space travel, especially when it involves humans, isn't easy on the pockets. It's true that in recent years, NASA had budgets of billions of dollars Sure sounds like enough money, right? Well, not when you check out their to-do list. That's because they have to consider everything. From telescopes and giant rocket projects to missions also targeting the Sun, Jupiter, Mars, and beyond. When you look at it this way, NASA needs to be very good at budgeting to achieve all those goals. It's not just because of finances, though. The moon itself is quite problematic It poses real dangers that cannot be taken lightly. For starters, its surface is filled with craters and boulders that aren't easy to land on. Then, there is the moon dust, or regolith, if you'd like to call it by its scientific name. It was created over many years by meteorite impacts. It's extremely harsh and sticks to everything. It can potentially damage spacesuits, vehicles, and systems quite quickly. Also, Dealing with the lunar habitat isn't a walk in the park either. The moon has no protective atmosphere. What this means is that for 14 days at a time, the lunar surface is faced with harsh rays from the sun. That period is followed by another two weeks of total darkness. All these changes create extreme temperatures, which us humans are not really accustomed to. There are solutions, don't worry nasa is working on dust and sun resistant spacesuits and vehicles they're even developing a system that might supply electricity during those lunar nights what's even more interesting about this system is it could come in handy on mars too once we get there nasa also needs to draw in really smart people for its projects think about it the average age of the people working for the mission control for Apollo 13 was just 26 years old and these people had already been part of numerous missions by that time which means they'd had considerable experience from a very young age but here's where other individuals can help too in recent years it wasn't just NASA who's been working tirelessly to revolutionize space travel There are many successful people out there with enough resources to join in on these efforts some are developing new types of rockets that can land on the moon too in total nasa landed 12 people on our satellite it's definitely one of the most awesome moments in its history if not the best and those astronauts did amazing things up there they brought back rocks took snapshots Did science experiments and even left flags behind these were all important moments of the Apollo missions but they weren't meant to create a safe place for humans on the moon scientists have had this idea of a lunar space station for a long time now it's only logical after all it's just a three-day trip from Earth it means we can technically afford to make little mistakes here and there without messing up the whole project. Plus, we'd learn so much before venturing even further into space. A moon base could provide fuel for deep space missions. We could also build telescopes up there and launch them way easier in space. It could also help us in another important project, figure out how to make Mars habitable too. Not to mention, a lunar space station would help us learn more about the moon's origin Who knows, it could even bring in some money because of all that fun, exciting lunar tourism. Either way, the Apollo Moon program took a lot of work. For starters, let's look at the sheer number of people involved. Around 400,000 from every corner of the states. Not everything was picture perfect, tough. There were two main unfortunate events. Firstly a fire mishap at the launch pad of Apollo 1. Secondly, an oxygen tank decided to throw a tantrum on Apollo 13, causing severe issues mid-mission. An important part of the project was Saturn V. It is to this day the most powerful rocket flown successfully, being 36 stories high. Still finding it hard to picture? This rocket stood twice as tall as Niagara Falls, Thanks to Saturn V, NASA successfully completed 13 missions. This included chauffeuring 24 astronauts towards the moon, with half of them even having a little walk on its surface. The existing rockets and space shuttles can't go beyond low-Earth orbit. In simpler terms, they can't reach the moon with all the gadgets astronauts need to thrive. Current space vehicles are just not capable of carrying that load, at least not since the Apollo missions happened. Regardless, we did make a lot of progress on Earth and are ready to send astronauts to our satellite pretty soon. Here's where the Artemis project comes in. It's a program overseen by NASA. And to make sure it all goes well, NASA previously launched Orion. A spacecraft with no crew on board to orbit the moon and return to Earth. Think of it as an automated test drive. Before we actually send people out there again, we need to make sure all the devices work properly. One day, Orion will be the vehicle that will take astronauts to the moon again. It features a launch abort system to keep astronauts safe in case something bad happens during launch. It also has a service module, which is the powerhouse that fuels and propels Orion and keeps astronauts alive with water, oxygen, power, and temperature control. All these future projects make one wonder. What will life on the moon be like anyway? We can only use our imagination for now. Some say we'll be living in homes straight out of a fairy tale, something like a cozy hobbit hole living underground on the moon might be a must that's due to the scorching temperatures and the lack of oxygen if you add meteorite threats and the non-stop radiation it's no wonder we can't just walk on its surface what about transportation big and small companies alike are trying to create the ideal moon ride if current estimations are current one type of moon taxi will take off as soon as 2024. Unlike our current rockets, these space taxis won't have to deal with the harsh conditions of re-entering Earth's atmosphere. It will be easier for them to make multiple round trips. To support our lunar living, we'll need to have a special area for space taxis to safely take off and land. Think of it as a landing pad on a firm, flat stretch of moon surface, protected by walls to shield against moon dust. Moving around on the moon's surface will be made easier too. The next generation vehicles we're talking about will have their own controlled environment. Which means you won't need a spacesuit while inside. Should feel like stepping out of your space ride for a bit. Then of course, you'll need to put on your spacesuit. Alright. So we've got our homes and our rides sorted. But what about fuel? That's where the moon throws us a lifeline. The moon's lighter gravity means we don't need as much power to escape its pull. Plus, the moon has ice, and that's super handy. We might be able to convert this ice into rocket fuel. We'll need dedicated space gadgets to help gather this ice. One such tool is called Trident. It's like a drill, perfect for digging into the icy moon surface. Additional robotic helpers would then turn this ice into fuel And deliver it to a space gas station. If this works, rockets on their way to Mars could stop by for a quick fuel top-up before continuing their journey.
0: That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side.